This is a MacKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowendick to the south and Meetung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. I'm your host, Meg Bell, and joining us today, we've got Anthony Uren, Operations Manager at AJ and PA McBride, and Steph Brooker-Jones, District Wool Manager for Elders and Australian Wool Industry Medal recipient. Welcome, Anthony and Steph, and thanks so much for being here. So today we're looking at large-scale sheep farming, wool growing and wool sales. We're just sort of tackling a small kind of number of topics today. So (laughs) thanks for being here. Anthony, you spent most of your career working on stations and on sheep properties. Tell us how you got into it. Where'd you start from? I grew up in ag. My father managed properties, um, so I'm from New South Wales originally. So my family, my father managed properties and he started his life jackarooing and worked his way up through the ranks through to farm management. So I was exposed to corporate and family ag or corporate family ag from an early age. And that sort of piqued my interest, sort of spent my holidays and any time after school out out with dad or out with jackaroos. And I suppose developed a real love for it and love for ag and just a love for the being involved in teams. So there was, you know, obviously we had a lot of staff with jackaroos, etc. around and that was always good fun. So there was always a lot of banter and I really enjoyed that and really enjoyed the ag side of it. So I suppose that's what really piqued my interest at the start and left school, went jackaroo, went to Queensland and uh, went into agriculture, onto a uh, Santa Gertruda stud uh, up in southern Queensland and then went off to ag college and a couple of years at Ag College it was a lot of fun. Uh, learned a bit and really in, enjoyed my time there, and then went back out and uh, went into corporate ag, and and that's yeah, and that's where it all started. So uh, and just worked my way up through to through to farm management. Yeah, and you're a sheep man now, despite starting out on a Santa stud. <laughs> How did that come about? Sheep has been the major part of it all the way through, even as a, as a young kid, and. I sort of grew up at Mon Mungadal Merino Stud and uh, spent, I suppose, my formative years there and that's where I really developed a love for sheep and wool, doing the show circuit and all that all that jazz and that was you know, a lot of fun as a young guy and that really piqued my interest. So I guess the the move into stud cattle was a, was a temporary one. It yeah. was only for 12 months but obviously beef, um, beef cattle has, has been a major part of, of um, my career right through but obviously uh, with a strong sheep and wool focus and along the way I've sort of managed irrigated farming country, um, you know, flood and, and, and uh, lateral move irrigation from summer and winter crops, cotton, you know, wheat etc. So it's been a real mix all the way through. You had some time up in the New England before you came down to South Australia. Tell us a bit about your experience there. Uh, so yeah, I spent a, uh, overall probably I think it was 23 or 4 years with uh, another family pastoral company, uh, TA Field Estates, which are uh, remarkably similar to AJ and PA McBride, where I am now, followed very similar paths, but uh, opposite ends of the country, but um, both family companies. I was transferred to, to the New England and managed a property called Congai Station. It was 25,000 acres with 40-odd thousand sheep and 2,500 beef cattle. That was the first time I'd really been exposed to fine wool, sort mm-hmm. of formative years in western New South Wales and the Riverina, sort of 19 to 23 microns or back in the, you know, when the reserve price stream scheme was pumping along, you know, as much as we could of 23 odd microns. So to move to the New England and deal with, well, down to 12s, you know, 12 and a half, 13 micron fleeces yeah. was, a, was a real eye-opener and something. I still remember my first day there. Um, I went up as almost an introductory tour, I suppose, and they were classing the U-Hoggets the principal of the business said here have a look at those cast your eye along the race and tell me what you think i'd open them up from the start to the finish and they're all as you know soft as a fairy's fart i suppose and <laughs> it was uh, i said well they all look good to me you know they're all fine as hell so uh, so yeah that was a real baptism of fire in, into fine wool and something that i really grew to love yeah good you've also completed a mba a master of business administration how do you think that's helped in your various roles that you've completed or that you've been part of over the years? Yeah, so I did that later in life. I was, whew, I reckon I was in my 40s when I started that, early 40s. So three kids at boarding school. 
uh, managing a couple of properties. So juggling that was, I really learned how to prioritise my time, that was one thing. Develop my critical thinking skills and higher level business, sort of around IR and law, etc. So just to how it sort of you you bring that into practice I, I don't know but it just sort of as I say it sort of really assisted with your critical thinking skills and how to write reports and how to reference and search and find information is the stuff that I really really took out of it. Mm. And you joined AJ and Pam McBride in February 2022 and they're one of the largest wool producers in Australia so tell us a bit about the McBride operation and what your role is in the business. So, yeah, family company established in 1920, so operating for over 100 odd years and to this day still operated by the same family and for the benefit of of those shareholders. I think we're the sixth generation uh, now. Predominantly South Australian based, one property into uh, into Victoria, so on the South Australian Victorian border, so 10 properties in total, five in the pastoral and let's say five in in the southeast with a really strong wool focus. Breeding our own rams, we've got uh, the two studs at Napawi breeding rams for the pastoral and for the southeast, and also a significant beef enterprise with Angus uh, Angus Cross Beef Herd. So my role as I was operations manager, I guess it's really a meat in the sandwich type of role. You're sort of in between, you're sort of the conduit from the board and the farm managers. So I guess it's you know, you're overseeing the day-to-day operations and. You're there to support the managers, support the team and support the staff in their day-to-day operations and make sure they've got the tools and the resources that they need to, to carry out their objectives and, and, to, and to make um, their day-to-day lives easier and, and support them and relay any of the challenges that they're facing or the po- and positive news through to the board and obviously the board set the policies and, and uh, we seek guidance for that from them on, on, on issues and, and we, we implement that and, and develop the strategies and put it in place. Uh, at a farm level so I guess that's how my role I mean you've only been there for so or not only but you've been there for about 18 months now a bit over what kind of changes or what sort of innovations have you you know brought into the business have you made changes yet or you're sort of still feel finding your feet or still getting to know the business still very much getting to know the business I mean there's a lot of moving parts a lot happening Definitely at this stage, still trying to get a, get a good handle on where the business is, learn from people, build a network down here and get the right advice and, and listen to the guys on the ground, you know, get to know them and, and what they're trying to achieve. But as far as changes, no, nothing really. I mean, it was something that I looked as a great positive when moving to the, to the company that they've been benchmarking for so long. So mm-hmm. they, they knew what drew, drives the business and what drives production and profit and, and, and makes it a sustainable business. So they've got all those, those fundamentals in place and they've got some great assets to, that they're working with. So there's no, it's just really tinkering around the edges. All the fundamentals are in place. And as I say, we're still, I'm still getting to know it. We've done some slight changes of things in, at a stud level, but that's really just around data recording and, and how we might use that and use that to drive improvements in, in the wool flock. Not saying that we need to make major changes. It's just refining things already there. I mean, there's, there's some great productive sheep that have been distributed throughout the company. And, mm. the, and we see the wool that we see come across the tables at shearing is a real testament to that. So, it's yeah, at this point, it's really still getting to know the business mm. and and steady as she goes really yeah very good so and we've talked about some of the innovations you've implemented since you've been with mcbrides which is only a really short amount of time what about prior to that what sort of innovations have you been involved with in in your time in farming a combination of a few things or, or one thing led to the to the other and uh, and we sort of came to a, not an end point but we came to a pretty positive outcome was the adoption of EID technology way back in the early days and we had those big uh, all flex buttons that we we used to reuse and, and play around with and that came about we had a, a ram multiplier or a stud on, on, on the property Congo uh, where, I, where I was at the time and um, we were heavily involved in objective measurement and indexing and, and how that related to driving our, our selection decisions etc and I uh, happened to go to a trade fair. It was in Armadale and, and down the river banks of on the river banks at Armadale. And Steve Semple, who was a guy with the New South Wales DPI, was doing this a trial, well, not necessarily a display, I suppose you call it, around u- the use of EIDs and and doing live indexing um, or drafting and sorting sheep live as you went. And I said, "Wow, that is a great idea." You know, we were sort of lambing down sixteen thousand ewes at the time, and and I think, how could I expand that into the whole drop? How could I 
do this across all the sheep in the business. I approached him about it and I sort of sent an email afterwards or got in contact afterwards, said, how do I do this? So I said, well, I've got five and a half thousand years. I want to index them all at once. If I can do that, because uh, it takes me two days to run them all through the weigh machine. It's manual, slow. I said, if I can do that on the run, we'd sort of run the first hundred through, get their body weights, do a weighted average, and we could run the rest through and index them on the go and I wouldn't have to worry about bringing them all back through and spending all that time. Anyway, as it turned out, there was too many sheep, the files were too big and, and the weigh scales wouldn't talk to this and wouldn't talk to my computer, so it all got a bit too hard. So yeah. I sort of put that on the back burner and then technology evolved and enabled us to do that. And we started to think about how the indexes that, that um, industry, so the Sheep Genetics Australia were using and, and how they benefited us and what they were really doing to the profitability of the sheep we were selecting. Anyway, it turns out that, that there was some, a private index out there that we could use, and uh, which was all about driving fleece value on the animal. So it wasn't necessarily about fleece weight, it wasn't about micron, it wasn't about traits individually, but it's what drives the value of the fleece on that animal, how can we select for that in an index? And anyway, we, we applied that technology and, apply, and applied the use of that index. And, and all the while we were sort of going through the transition of helping AWI with trial work on non-millsing and we were using clips and we were using uh, sodium lauryl sulfate, the skin traction. And we're, so we're trialling all those sort of things and they're all working to varying degrees. And then when you sort of got to a practical sense, it wasn't. And we said, well, let's just stop millsing altogether. So we did that. And in conjunction with that and our selection processes, etc., we're starting to build a bit of quite a bit of traction. We're doing really well in in weather trials, and we're sort of a thousand twelve hundred bar clip. So we're at a you know, flock average of sixteen and a half microns. So we started to attract some international interest around what we're doing, and ended up building a relationship with Bodo Giuseppe, an Italian spinning wheel. So all those things sort of culminated to that point. So we were indexing the whole drop of ewes, we were selecting them, ranking them obviously from the best to the, to the lowest performers and we we're using that as part of our classing. Obviously we, we had, they had to be structurally correct and all those sort of things. And that was really providing dividends and we kept, you know, up to 30% of our flock was were weathers and we'd carry those through to two, three year old, but that was just very much you know, drafting them out on, on body weight. You know, what was, what was ready to go was ready to go. And we thought, well, why can't we apply indexing to the weather portion? I'm not sure many people are doing that. And it just made sense that, you know, a, a bad performer has cost just as much or if not more to hang on to than a good performer. You know, maybe we should apply that to, um, to our weathers. And we were indexing everything. So we wouldn't, weren't body weighing those. I mean, there wasn't, it was some other work we'd looked at about, you know, body, correlation of body weight to fleece value. And within the cohorts that we were doing, so on farm, there was no correlation between fleece value and body weight so we said there's no point we're not going to breed a lamb out of them so you know let's not bother doing that so we're just using all the fleece traits and and retaining those animals with the highest fleece value mm. through benchmarking that we've done over time over 20 odd years worth we knew that in our merino enterprise in our situation that you know 70 odd percent of our income was driven by fleece mm. income not necessarily not not the not surplus sheep sales. So to, to our mind, it was all about, well, how do we maximise fleece value? Mm. And how do we capture the animals that have the, the highest fleece value? And that was through that process of using AIDs and, and selection indexes and ranking animals and performed really well on benchmarking. We took out the New England weather trial um, over a few years. No, I shouldn't say took it out. It's probably not the best, <laughs> the, be the best, the best turn of years in the weather trial. We performed very well, you know, we were late, we, we, uh, we yeah, performed exceptionally well in yeah. that. So that was sort of a validation of what we're doing, which was great. EID's <coughs> just been made mandatory and will be kind of implemented in the coming few years here in South Australia and in most other states in Australia too. How do you think that's going to be implemented in AJ and Pam McBride? Is, have you already started that process or is it still a bit to come? couple of the properties have been using AIDs for a good number of years. Obviously now that it's a, basically a sunk cost, it's going to be part of our business, it's going to be an input cost that we've got no choice in. So it makes sense to us that we let's value add on that. Let's, how do we use that? Yeah. And we've started to implement that now through you know, tagging out the females 
that are born over the next couple of years. We'll look at how widely we expand that. Um, we've got to remember that at the end of the day, we're commercial producers and we need to keep it simple and, and we need to have a commercial focus. So we'll look at how widely we do implement that. I mean, the technology and the equipment or the hardware we're using nowadays is just all plug and play. It all talks to each other. All those things are so much easier. Where our south southeast properties are all pretty, you know, not too far apart. We can, I'm sure we can share equipment to, to keep those costs down and, and and make it work. And as I say, it's a couple of the properties have been indexing um, for a couple of years. Mm. So if we might, you know, we might look at spreading that a bit further. And uh, but yeah, as I say, it's a sunk cost to our businesses now. So. Uh, let's exploit it for all it's worth mm. and let's use it to drive production and efficiencies where we can. Yeah, great attitude to have. So, Steph, Anthony's told us a bit about the wool and wool growing. Can you tell us a bit, where do you fit in? What's your role in, <laughs> in the supply chain as district wool manager? Well, I've been based at Loosendale with Elders for coming up 20 years. So uh, I cover um, quite a few branches, primarily Kingston, Loosendale, Border Town, down to Millicent, Mount Gambier. Just we've got new people on there, so I was sort of uh, on the peripheral there, but still have got clients down there. So my role is, you know, I see myself as an advisor. I love going on farm. I love helping people with their wool preparation. I think I'm a pretty hands-on person. And now with the ability as a, a wool manager, you know, we get to see their wool sold through auction. We've got relationships with processors. You know, I always say it's from uh, grass to garment. Yeah. And it's a great supply chain to be in and I'm fortunate enough to be involved with uh, some of the McBride business on those properties. I just love going along and helping people maximise their returns. I've always got, usually got the farmer at heart. I try (laughs) and, uh, you know, put wools together as much as I can, advise them on market trends and usually try to be a good listener just to see what people want to do and... It really depends on their enterprise, whether it's Merino, Crossbreed, First Cross, Composite. I love it all. I'm a multi-talented wool lover. <laughs> Very good. Nothing like a wool jumper on a cool southeast morning, is there? And, uh, and yeah. I'm just admiring the tablecloth we've got here because I sat down and I said, this looks like an Onca Paringa blanket <laughs> circa 1970. And I happen to have the label in front of me and it's an Onca Paringa. So, I mean, this blanket is probably over 50 years old. <laughs> and it's the sustainability of wool. Yeah, right. it's, it's an enduring product. It's pretty good. It probably served a purpose as a blanket on a bed and serving a purpose as a sound dampener here in, Excellent. The, I in love our it. Po- um, <laughs> podcast studio. <laughs> so, Steph, what are wool buyers and processors asking for at the moment? What's What are the market signals? What are they telling us? Okay, so we've just recently had a letter from a major processor in China and the biggest concern is, and it's been there before, is contamination. As much as we think we've improved the industry in the last 40 years, trying to get the message through, I recently had a claim for the top of a, a water bottle lid in the wall. There's still the ongoing contamination of clothing, baling twine, stuff that shouldn't be getting into the product. That's a major concern we've got at the moment. Mm. That's been around for 40 years. We've tried to rectify those problems. So contamination, one of the other things we're coming looking for, processors looking for consistency in their product. What we say is in the bale is actually in the bale. Yeah. We want a product that's uh, consistent, it's true to label, and there's going to be no surprises. All things that we've sort of asked for the wool industry for the past, you know, that I've been involved in 40 years, and not a lot has changed really got to emphasise the benefits of wool preparation, good classing, putting lines together, putting lines that suit the orders together, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So what's something that people could be doing to help with some of that contamination and those issues? What are the major things that they could be doing on farm to sort of prevent, prevent some of those issues? I have seen excellent sheds prepared We've got our recycling, we've got rubbish bins, we've smokings outside. There's going to be no smoking in the shearing shed, it's a workplace. As much as we hate to tell people, you know, those changes, we've got to say, this is a workplace, no smoking outside, you've got your sand buckets. They've got recycling bins, that sort of thing. I have seen a lot of mess left in shearing sheds and it's a matter of the owner 
going through these sheds and checking them almost on a daily basis while shearing's on because there's drink bottles left there, there's jumpers by wool presses. Try and eliminate those risks in the shearing shed just to get, get that job done properly, really. Tell us a bit about the outlook and market trends for the wool market, Seth. What's happening there? We've gone through an interesting couple of years. You know, we've had our post-COVID, we had a really big downturn in 2020 with the wool prices uh, due to the COVID, the restrictions in sales, shipping, that sort of thing. We've got a couple of wars going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. We've got a, a China property recession and we've got a European recession going on. So, you know, those things are all still going on. So once we see our way see our way clear of them, we actually are looking really positive for the wool market. And I'd say that across all micron. There's still a, quite an interest in your 14, 15 microns down where Ant was originally mm-hmm. to our, um, what I call them, fine wools, the 17 and 18s. And we've got a really strong market in your 19 and a half to 21s, 22s at the moment, the old, what we used to call the SA bread and butter wools, which are originally 23, but now they've probably reduced back to 2021. 20, and with the crossbred wool, you know, we are in the southeast. We've got a lot of first cross and composites. We've sort of reduced that stockpile. We had a huge stockpile of crossbred wool right across the world, South America, South Africa, the UK, New Zealand. And the Australian uh, wool production has shifted to a lot of composites and first cross, particularly in this higher rainfall area. But we see the end of that supply, the stockpile of crossbreds. And so the buyers are now back to a hand-to-mouth situation and we're not saying that the crossbred market's going to boom, but we see some improvement over the next probably 12 to 18 months. For anybody listening who might not necessarily know, can you explain a bit about where the different microns might end up in a product at the end of the day? Okay, so your fine wools, you know, traditionally your 13s to 19s will end up in a your fine knitwear in a European market. Most of your wool is virtually, early stage processing is virtually all done in China now. Mm-hmm. You know, have very little done in Australia, maybe some carbonisings at Michelle in Adelaide. Victoria wool processors might do a bit of carbonising and contract combing. But most of our early stage processing is now in China. The development of fabric into Vietnam and China, so a lot of those places are what we call integrated, fully integrated. So they'll do the early stage processing, the washing, the combing into tops. And then they'll go through to spinning yarn and actual garment manufacture. So the Chinese have developed a lot in the last 20 years and they can process a lot of anything from 18 to 36 micron. I've got my wundies on, I've got my wool socks on, I've got my wool runners on. So I've got a bit of, I've got a bit of merino shank, I've probably got a bit of 18 micron on my delicate butt. <laughs> And I do have a woolen bra, but I uh, haven't got that on today. So there's a lot of next-to-skin wear, yeah. a lot of athleisure wear, as they call it. So there's, you know, it, that probably goes up to your 20, 21 micron range. And then you'll get your knitwear, which is your jumpers. And you're going into your first cross and composites. A lot of that goes into furnishings. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the downturns we've seen is through COVID is the lack of hotels updating their upholstery, their carpet, yeah. their curtains, which... You know, in uh, in the Asian area, there's a lot of wool. We can see a resurgence coming back into that. So that's where your broader types go, is into that uh, heavier type airline seats. How many planes got put off? It's uh, fire-retardant wool. You know, there's a lot of uses. Cars, it's going into cars, car seating. Everything is used, like I said, from grass to garment. Yeah. Locks, stain right up to your beautiful fleeces. There's always a positive sign, and I like to put that out. Yeah, and there's been a fair bit of change in the technology of making the garments from when we were kids and had those awful itchy jumpers, hasn't there, to be able to wear next to skin and, you know, out running when it's cold or when it's hot, hasn't there? Mm. We've still got that generation that think of those 24 micron, you know, they had the uh, high... uh, or low comfort factor, I should yeah. say, in them, and the little bendy fibres that are going to give you itch. We've got to get past that. Everything's, you know, 90%, 98% machine washable now, so yeah. we can actually put it in a dryer. Like, all those things have happened in the last 30 years, but we just have to get through, probably to some of the older people, but the new, new but younger generation coming in, you know, there's some great athleisure wear singlets and runners. You know, we've got 
spandex, wool, lycra, all in the same product. Mm. So they're really catering to those active outdoor layering. You know, you can go anywhere in probably five different layers of wool and you got your carry-on luggage. Yeah, beautiful. Talking about, you know, some of those changes that maybe we need to make on farm, what are your key messages or, or tips for farmers who might be listening to help maximise their clip return? Well, one thing I always say is talk to your broker. Is the broker doing the job for you? What are they What are they offering you? Have they got the right markets? For us, like myself, I've got 15, 16 micron up to 34 micron, so I've got to be across all those markets, really. And, I mean, it's easy to just say, oh, yeah, send it off to auction. But, like, we have uh, seen an increase in exporter broker relationships and that goes back to the farmer as well. Mm. So people are contacting us, exporters are content- contacting us for orders. Uh, Steph, where does that wool come from? I want to contact that grower. Have they got the opportunity to forward sell their wool? Is there a, a mill direct contact? Things we've sort of done with McBride's through Australian Wool Innovations. You know, there's opportunities out there, so talk to your broker and see what's there for your specific type of wool. Mm. You can sit there and say it's a regular run-of-the-mill merino and 80%'s going to China. There are opportunities out there and it's a matter of asking the questions or your broker's telling you what's out there. And it sounds a bit like that provenance, sustainability type of story is becoming more popular and knowing where your product is produced, a bit like we've kind of seen in the red meat industry. I guess there's a lot of sustainability conscious people in fashion, isn't there? So that importance of knowing where the product is coming from and what you're actually wearing is is really Oh, well, I mean, you know, we've sort of um, probably tried to get that message over the last couple of years, particularly with the high use of oil-based products, Mm. like the sheep eat grass, they're environmentally friendly, they're sustainable, the product's recyclable, it all goes together. And, uh, you know, you might sit there and say it's a bit of BS, but there are clients, our exporters, our fabric designers that want to get rid of the fast fashion, which is the, here's the colours, for this year, the pink, the blues, the pastels from 1970, mm. those fashion trends are sort of set probably two or three years in advance. So things like in the UK, they do a tweed run. Now, who would have heard of tweed in Australia? You know, the old Harris tweed, the itchy fibres in, <laughs> but it's trendy. Yes. So you've got the 20 and 30-year-olds dressing up as something out of, I'm just trying to think of some old TV program, circa the <laughs> 1930s, 40s, you know, post-World War Two. Yes. riding bikes on a tweed run. Like, it's trendy. It's trendy to use these sustainable fabrics and fibres. Yeah. It's a great story for farmers, isn't it, I reckon? Yeah, and I yeah. mean, you can get involved with it. You know, sometimes I say it's a little bit cheesy, but because I've actually seen the results, I'm quite excited about it now yeah. and again. I get, you know, like it's great to see where some of these products end up mm. in the US or in the UK. And I mean, a lot of them, you know, they do come out of China, Vietnam, but it's on trend and we're, wool's up there with us. Mm. It's good. You're known as a bit of a pioneer in the merino industry and a trailblazer for female wool classes. Tell us a bit about your journey from city girl to district wool manager. Do you want me to start at the really good beginning? Yeah. You've heard the original story? I don't know that I have. (laughs) There's a first time for everything. (laughs) Well, it is. I'm I'm a city slicker. I have had no introduction to ag at all, really. My mother's from a sheep station out of Port Augusta, but that was back in the 40s, so she was sent off to boarding school. They all became nurses. I've got an older brother who's seven years older. He did a lot of travelling. And, you know, he ended up in northern South Australia and up to the Kimberleys, and I'm in year 10 or whatever. I wanted to be a policewoman, and I thought I'd be... I think you'd all agree I probably would have been a pretty good policewoman. (laughs) But uh, back at that time, if you wanted to become a policewoman, you had to have done nursing or have gone to secretarial college, as it was called back then. So, And you had to be 21. Yeah. So the police cadets were getting in at 14 and 15. So I said, well, I don't want to be a nurse or a secretary, (laughs) even though my mother was a nurse, the sisters, everyone was a nurse, you know, and that's what were your options. So I said, I think I'd like to travel. Then I thought I'd like to work outdoors like my brother. Mm. I went down to the Career Reference Centre and I said, right, what can I do? We had these booklets and outdoor. So we had wool classing, and my neighbour was a governess, so I thought, oh, I could go governessing, $45 a week. Yeah. That included your board. It was pretty good. <laughs> governessing. I had a friend that was trying to get me into ag science. 
I got an F for biology, so ag science wasn't <laughs> going to be one of my uh, fortes, so I decided against that. And then there was something called artificial insemination. Well, this is a city slicker, so I go down to the Career Reference Centre, skimming through the books, artificial insemination. Oh, my God, they are putting their hand up a cow's bum. I am not going to do artificial insemination. I'm going to have to do wool classing or governessing because they're the only other two options to me. So this is a very uh, badly thought out career (laughs) process. (laughs) I could have been an air hostess, but I was probably too heavy. So... (laughs) And, and probably not tall enough back then. Now they're not fussy, so I could still be an air hostess maybe. So that's how I got into wool classing. Yeah. I went down to Marlston, spoke to the uh, deputy head down there. It was John Patton at the time. And I said, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do governessing or wool classing. And then I decided, I thought, really, do I want to put up with kids? I'd actually taught swimming at Lucendale, and I said, no, I don't think I want to teach kids. So I decided on wool classing. Very good. Another girl and I, I think, well, this is our claim to fame, were the first two girls to actually go through Marlston School of Wool on a full-time basis. Wow. And that was 1977. And the rest is history. It was a time of unionism and work. No one had heard of women in the wool sheds. There were a few. So I did go up to the station. I think they were trying to beat it out of me that they wanted me. I wanted to become a wool classer. They never said anything to me personally, but uh, I was sent up to the sheep station out of Port Augusta and I was made to clean. <laughs> so there was no outdoor activity for Steph. So when I came down teaching swimming at Lucendale, which is highly coincidental, I worked in, walked into my first shearing shed as I was doing the learn to swim. Yeah. And it happened to be on the farm next door where we now own. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first time I'd actually touched wool. Okay. Mm. Wow. So how did you get from there to here? What what sort of training experience did you go through? Well, back then, and we always say, we always used to have the competition, the Marlston trained wool classing students were the best trained next to the Gordon in Geelong. Virtually, I had to go to Marlston. I didn't have to. That was my choice. Uh, Marlston School of Wool for 10 months. We got to work in the breed class, the bulk class. I worked at Bennett and Fisher down at Port Adelaide. That was a filthy job. I was probably the first girl ever to work in a wool store down there as a little grotty uh, bin bin boy or bin girl shoveling wool from the bulk class bales around. Then it was really hard to get work because the union had some really good points. We had to have separate accommodation, showers, all that sort of thing. And there was limited people that would take us on. Finished Marlston in probably October, worked in the a reclass at Bennett and Fisher and then we finally got a job with stock owners shearing up at Oakton Hills and Nonning. That was great. Still really hard to find contractors who would take women on, which mm. is really hard to believe. And I used to go out and I'd get a few jobs in between and one of the good stories I remember is I met a contractor from Oruru, just was ringing up contractors and he said, I'll meet you at the some pub on the Hut Street, I'm trying to think of an Austral or something like that. And I'm going, okay. So Steph walks along sensibly, long denim skirt, nice blue check shirt, and uh, met Murray Shackelford from Oruru, and who told me later, he said, I gave you a job, Steph, because of your shoes. <laughs> so I had sensible shoes on. I would just, <laughs> like, you know, just sitting there going, this is so uh, not right. But, um, you know, he got to be, I dressed for the job. Well, I thought I'd dressed for the job. Yes. So that put me into some bigger contacts in the industry so I could sort of fast track myself but basically we had to do a year on properties we went through a stage of so many sheds our teachers came out and inspected us rated us our wool classes give reports on every shed and then you had to do a senior student so you were virtually in charge the overseer of the wool shed so if you passed off on that then you would get your stencil so you know it's virtually two years before you got your classes stencil so then you had a p1 which we called a professional one. And then if you wanted to get your P2, you had to submit merino and crossbred clips for analysis by Australian Wool Corporation, the broker, and possibly the teachers at the school. We did quite a lot of work and classing in those two years. The best background was being in the wool store with so many types of wool, and then going down to the Western Districts to work with the fine wools and the crossbreds, our pastoral clips, and and a few crossbreds. It seems a bit of a long process, really. You know, we got there... And I've still kept in touch with my teachers. I've, you know, some of them have passed on, unfortunately. 
I cannot believe they thought that Susan and I would never make it. They never told us that at the time. They were totally supportive, encouraged us, but that's what they said. They said, there's no way these two girls are ever going to get through <laughs> doing this wool-classing course. So, yeah, that was a great, a great compliment. And, I mean, you know, we were two girls in amongst 55 blokes when we first started Knowing you now, I'm not sure how they had that mentality because how could you not <laughs> succeed? <laughs> well, it's a bit like the, the mother and the aunt, you know, like as a determined 16-year-old and we all know what 16-year-old girls are like. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty terrible. <laughs> well, if you're not going to let me do it, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do this and prove you lot wrong. When did you start to see that culture change and people becoming more open to having you come onto farm? The New Zealanders probably started bringing girlfriends over. I probably went to Victoria in 1980, 1979, 1980, came across a few shearer couples from New Zealand. It might have been a little bit more happening in Victoria than South Australia. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got five rouseabouts in a shearing shed, five female rouseabouts. Uh, I came back to Lucendale to class in 1983 and there were quite a lot of local girls working in the sheds then. That shift from 1997 to 1981-82, I mean, then you throw the wide gear, wide comb dispute into mm. that, and that really changed the union's view, or the union and the shearing industry. You know, there's a lot more Kiwis coming in once the wide gear was brought. There was more females coming over from New Zealand. A couple of years after us, there was two more girls went through. That Just that shift in that five years, mm. probably more girls coming into the shed. Yeah, that's great to hear. You've seen a fair bit of change, both of you, in, in the last 10 to 30 to 40 years. Where do you see the next changes coming from in the next 10 years? I think there is a real need for change. From a, probably if you're looking from a business perspective, I think the last, oh, I don't know, three, five years, maybe even longer, we've sort of really battled with labour in the sheep industry and the sexiness has gone out of wool, the sheep and wool to a certain degree. Why that is, I don't know whether it's just hard work or whether it's air-conditioned cabs and <laughs> auto steer and all those things that are just easy and people can sit there, you know, you don't have to break a sweat, you're in air-conditioned comfort listening to wireless all day. I don't know whether that plays a role. But sheep definitely has been, it's hard work and it's demanding from a labour sense. So I think we need to improve that somehow. And I think, you know, as much as we can do to make it more efficient, more labour efficient. I think from a true believer like myself, the, the sexiness of wool has, has always been there. It's never never gone. And I, and I, for somehow we've lost that in the industry and I don't know how we get that back. But if we can, yeah, if we can improve those efficiencies around handling and, and managing livestock, I think, and whether that's the modern marina, I don't know whether that's the answer. We hear about this modern marina that's out there and I don't know whether I'm sold on that animal yet the high fertility long staple shearing twice a year, twice a year the low maintenance type animal i'm not sure whether i'm 100 percent sold on that i think i'm still you know a believer in a not a traditional sheep but a a productive sheep that is all about driving value out of the fleece and that's what we're there for and i think once we start chasing fertility and doing these other things we're starting to put our foot in the other camp and we're we're being attracted to high mutton and lamb values and I think we've got to be careful we don't give up one for the sake of the other and 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 maintain our focus I mean we look at a downturn in in mutton and lamb prices at the moment you know if we've sacrificed wool income to change to chase that that has an effect you know and we're seeing the rise of cost of production you know latest iteration of, of uh, chemical defleecing at the moment in the pipeline so mm -hmm. be interesting to see how that pans out and whether that brings any more efficiencies or it'll certainly if it if it is successful will certainly take some pressure off the shearing shorter shortage challenges that we've been facing i don't think chemical shearing is going to be the answer to that totally not in the short to medium term uh, i think it'll have uses in certain areas it won't be wide a blanket application yeah. i think so it'll be interesting how that pans out and if that gives us options and that's what i think it will do if it's successful it won't be a replacement it'll just give us options for those who can so i'd be interested to see how that that pans out i think changes we've talked about and i know steph was talking about there earlier about wool as a fiber in, in the world's fiber industry and i think it's got a really strong part to play in the future when we talk about sustainability and and the reliance on fossil fuels and all those things and carbon 
our carbon footprints, etc. Yeah. So I think it's got a really, really positive story to tell. Kudos to AWI and their recent campaign around, you know, we're natural, not fossil mm. fuels. And I think that was a really gutsy and ballsy campaign that yeah. they put out there in Piccadilly Circus and yeah. Times Square just and the billboards. It's yeah. just awesome. And, yeah. and I think that was a fantastic campaign. And, and I really think we need to keep those sort of things going where we can, sell the good message that we'll have. So I'm really excited about the position that it has in, in that market space. What about you, Steph? What do you see happening in the Well, industry? I love Ant's term, the true believers, because, you know, I sarcastically say that we are the true believers out here. <laughs> and then I say that to those that have lost the love and converted to crossbreeds or, you know, some other form of enterprise, one of the biggest issues is staff, but it's not just our industry, and we've seen that over the last five and ten years. It's actually finding, and dare I say it, the passion for people to love wool. Like I say, I'm a true believer, but I'm also flexible that I can appreciate a lovely composite 33 micron. You know, I don't want to be prejudiced. I always say, no prejudice. I love everything. I'm still a true believer in the product. Recruiting young people into the job, employment opportunities. I've been at Elders, like I said, coming up 20 years. I was at Michelle's 10 years before that. We've got to get ready with the youth. that They're not going to stay in these jobs. Mm. You know, three to five years is probably where they're going to be. 10 years you'd be a dinosaur staying in that one job we've got to be as employers and in the sheep industry we've got to be prepared to we're constantly training people you know I don't know how many people I've had with me like you said I'm a bit of a mentor and that Mm. so I've had a lot of people I might have put them off that's why they've left the industry (laughs) we've just got to handle this change of employment I think and and getting that passion back for wool whether they love it for five years three years continually training they go to other jobs other opportunities we probably enjoy training people but we like to see some success Mm. and when you retain someone for a couple of years so that's that's one of the biggest challenges is just finding people to replace these people in these jobs as they come through for the manual handling like even the wool knowledge when I was made redundant from Michelle's I could probably had six companies approach me because I'd had you know 15 years classing 10 years at Michelle's so we haven't got people with that depth of knowledge. Not that I'm bragging, I'm just saying we don't have a lot of that depth of knowledge coming through anymore. And even the way that the training's gone, like we've done some great work with our training, shearers, shed staff, like we've virtually got people on tap that can go out and help shearers. They follow through, they do shed visits. But not everyone wants to be a shearer for the rest of their life. So if we can still maintain them for five to ten years, we've got to keep this ongoing training, Mm. the interest. You know, I'm involved in shearing and wool handling competitions as well. That's been a great interest and ability for people to travel. I travelled the world as part of my wool classing and rouseabouting and wool pressing. The opportunities there still for these people to travel and go to the States, the UK, they can go to Italy, they can go to Norway, New Zealand just depends what people want to do there's always a little alternate and a little bit of excitement out there you're both doing a bit of mentoring with young people and people coming through training with you and you know sitting in the sitting in the ute by by your side as you're going out around the countryside what's your most important message to those young people that might be coming into the industry to me it's just a very organic thing that you go through when you're talking to someone and you 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 give your two bobs worth and that little bit of wisdom wisdom that you've picked up along the way but i guess for me it's the main thing is to find something you love or find something you want to do that you maintain the focus or maintain the core focus on that and say for argument sake agriculture it's just believe in the science ignore the fads ignore the, the trends that come around a lot of the things we do and if you follow the science and you follow you know the tried and true you'll be successful and you and, and you stick to your knitting basically yeah. um and just don't get distracted and and uh yeah you'll you'll win in the long run that's for sure yeah we love distractions Ant. like my job <laughs> i get very distracted in fact i was training a great great girl last year and uh, we would just bounce from one to the other i said right oh lucy i'll tell you this and that and they go, oh sorry i've got distracted we've now got to go on to sales or do this and do that we're bouncing around all the time and we've got people that come through jobs where they're being told what to do they have a plan and you know they don't think outside the square my day can change in the morning so I can't always stick to a plan and it could be my fault, it could, could be the grower changing, it could be shearing time changing. So you've got to jump, adapt and bounce. Mm. And 
yeah, there's so much to learn out there, but it's just a matter of if you love it, do it. And if you don't, if you find it, like I sit in the car for 80, 70, 80,000 k's a year, I actually enjoy driving. I try to go a different way every day and <laughs> come back a circle, you know, make it a little bit of excitement. Yeah. And then I'm talking to growers, visiting different sorts of farms, but some people might not like that. Is this a job for you? Is it a job in agriculture or on a sheep stud? Try all those things and you might come back to being a district wool manager or you go back as and as a operations manager yeah. there's lots of opportunities but you know that's well, the thing about ag at the moment isn't it there's just so many opportunities and there's so many more avenues you can go down today than than when i first left college or school you know it was there was some pretty narrow pathways but it's so wide and, and i mean ag is one of the biggest adopters of technology and, and innovation um in recent times and, and into the near future so there's huge potential out there and mm. there's you know we just got to sell that positive message and and bring people bring people to the industry and we're getting a lot of that coming back through the through the ag schools like through the shows we've got the school weather comp at the adelaide show and that's an adopted nationally ag programs are now probably a little bit more focused on a diverse farming You've got your cattle, you've got your sheep, you've got goats. You've, there's lots of opportunities for those kids at school to be inducted early. And you can see those kids coming through, can't you? Mm, yeah, well, true. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've, you know, we've built relationships with, you know, Herbro down in Adelaide and, and their ag programs picked up immensely in the last, for the last little while anyway. And uh, they got a lot of interest from the school and we've built that relationship and we're seeing kids coming out who, who do have a, a real interest in ag and it's great to see that you know that relationships working for us as well as mm. not only supporting them in their ag program and uh, seeing kids coming out of there on farm and you know either through work experience on, on our properties or taking on a role with us uh, when they've left school so that's yeah. really great yeah great so kids new generation lots of exciting things happening what's your vision for the future of sheep and wool production to me, I reckon it's a really exciting future, and we've touched on it already, and that's around wool's place in the fibre market going forward. I think we've got an awesome story to tell around sustainability and, uh, and the benefits of wool and, and the, the provenance and the telling of a story. And, and I think we've got a really, really unique and a really positive story that we can tell and, and, and mesh in. And Steph was talking about it earlier, you know, about... We've got next of skin clothing that uh, we can wear and wear for a run, go out for a run and get hot, and you're not getting that itchy around mm. your neck, you know. So we've got that, and we've got shoes and socks, and then we've got fine Italian suiting and every gamut in between. We've got spray waterproof spray jackets that uh, Luna Rosser and those guys, you know, yeah. the AWI are pushing for yachting, yeah. etc. We've got cycling wear, so there's just this wide gamut, and I think uh, with the, with our credentials in industry, in the wool industry, I think we've got a really bright future and uh, I'd be excited to be a part of that. What about you, Steph? What, what's your vision for the future of sheep and wool production? Well, I can see it still might be stable here for a couple of years. Mm. I'm a bit like Anne, just that the passion, the, the talent, the, what we've got out there with the, the product development over the last probably 10 and 20 years. That's where our um, so-called levy money's going into, <laughs> hopefully. You know, one of the things I'm really excited about is, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 40 years. Just to give us a little bit of a plug, you know, we've just spent $26 million on a, on a new wool handling facility on the edge of Melbourne. This is the first time money's been spent in the wool industry on logistics and storage for probably 40 years. Mm. And I started off in the old Port Adelaide wool stores with the beautiful bricks and Jarrah pillars and pylons through there. Uh, I was around when the big new wool stores were built down at Gilman, Lara, you know, that's 40 years ago and now we've got technology, we've got robots that are going to be able to stack stack wool and unstack wool ready for export, so the technology's there. It seems a, a funny time to be investing in that sort of uh, development because of the shrinking wool market and the downturn in the, the industries. You know, like that was something that Earl was probably committed to five to seven years ago. Mm something that I probably was thought was a little bit oh that's not going to work having been over there there's going to be some great efficiencies from that and we just need to keep those efficiencies coming from the farm to get that through get that through the yeah. the whole supply chain as we say on that and to add to that with it'd be great to see it started to happen where our industry bodies and are working together and 
pulling together in the same direction. We've sort of got some cooperation with AWEX and, and AWI on the e-species and thankfully we've got that into one that going to be uniform across the industry so see how industry bodies pull together to support and chase these efficiencies and make it work that can that can utilize that the investments that have been made at that end and mm. at, at, uh, at the broker end it'd be great to see a, a more unified industry and not all industry bodies pulling in their own little separate ways to make make their own importance and, and pull to in one direction for the for the betterment of wool sheep and woolen growers yeah mm. for sure and a lot of a lot of growers don't probably they're probably not really sometimes interested in those aspects of it like because they see how many um bodies have we got that start with a australian wool innovations australian wool testing authority australian wool exchange we've got wool producers They've, you know there's about eight bodies that surround wool and you can't blame the average person that's probably running 60 bales or 100 bales of wool to be confused. And, oh, it's all for the merino breeders. Um, it's not. It's for everyone. Like, yeah. all this product yeah. development we've got coming through, it's a great... Like, it's there. The, mm. the technology's there to use it. So mm. we just need to keep it the momentum going, which I think we're doing a great job mm. of. So, and. What's next for you? What's your biggest challenge coming up well, in the next yeah. few months? Well, or? I suppose I'm still very much a new kid on the block, you know. So it's, you know, getting my head around the business, building a network, finding out who's who in the zoo and, and who can help us and, and uh, who, who we can help and, and pulling that all together, really, and drive efficiencies and drive production forward in, in, in the AJ and PA McBride business. So I guess that's my main focus is still... It's still, you know, finding my way, really. Really excited about the opportunities. Excited to see what's happening in SA agriculture and, yeah, looking forward to, to uh, yeah, some good times ahead. Yeah. A buoyant protein and wool market yeah. would be, uh, make that all the, <laughs> the, the much easier, I can assure you. Definitely. What about you, Steph? What's next for you? Oh, well, I'll keep uh, slaving away as I usually do. <laughs> you know, I'd really... I'm happy to keep training people. You know, everyone says, uh, contrary to uh, popular rumours going around, I'm not retiring, so you've got to put up with me a bit longer. <laughs> but always happy to train new staff, implement new methods, work with the farmers. We've got a few programs going on at the moment, which, uh, you know, like I can put growers in touch with. So if they're interested, if they're not, if they just want to produce a fibre, that's fine. We'll just sell it for them sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I'm always I'm happy to learn. And uh, I'd always give something a go and happy to support the young ones coming through and, and, and our lot of uh, new young wool classes coming through. Just keep them supported and give them some assistance where I can. Happy to stick around and support it. The wool industry and the sheep industry has been a great career for me. Like I said, I've been able to travel and I'd just like to see other people have that uh, opportunity. Thank you both so much for being here and being so very generous with your time. It's been a pleasure having you here and having this chat with you. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a MacKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at MacKillop Group or check out our website at www.mackillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time.